Chicago cohorts, good to have you. What a great God we serve, amen? What a holy God who sits on his throne. Uh, justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne, and we, his children, get to come up to him and, uh, and, and, and make intercession. That was a wonderful time. Well, we're going to learn about young earth creation today. That's really exciting, and we're going to hear it. Um, in, the, in the batter's box is our visionary leader and pastor, Joe Wyrostek. Let's learn about our God and his creation. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, Pastor Jared. Wonderful to uh, join you guys. What a great, powerful time of worship, brother and sister. Thank you. Let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the foundation for our worldview when it comes to creation. I was listening to the sermons from yesterday, and uh, in the midst of giving all of that information, I was wondering, you know, how much could I have given more? Did I do it right? There was just so much to give. I think I was sharing that with some of you, like Vinny. And after I went home and I listened to myself, I thought I did on the information pretty good. I think a lot of people got those basics. You know, I covered a lot of basics there. But as I was in a spirit of prayer and just really meditating on what was accomplished, I felt the greatest thing that was accomplished was me reading Genesis chapter 1 and explaining it. I'm being honest, man. I don't want to be like hyper-spiritual with, you know, with that, but it's like that was the most deepest thing. It's just literally to read this and us just to go, I agree with that. Because there are so many debates in science. Science is, after theology, science is the most uh, deepest subject you can get into. And theology is the deepest because it's God. And, and the reason why uh, the universe is as deep and complex as it is is because it's God's greatest creation for us to discover. So God and his creation, there are no more deeper subjects. And, of course, God is the greater subject. But, I mean, in the discussion of the universe, there are so many subjects. And so you could be endlessly discussing them. But I feel, honestly, and I want you guys to hear this because I believe you trust me as your pastor and leader, I believe there are spirits that are sent out against us, like in Ephesians chapter 6. And I believe one of them is godlessness. And so we learned about that in Romans. Matter of fact, just turn there with me to Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, so you can see that. I want to just show you Romans chapter 1 discusses the godless nature of the world. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. I believe there is a spirit of godlessness. And what it's doing is it's deceiving people in the scientific community. It is deceiving them. It's not deceiving them with uh, witches and warlocks and demons and devils with horns and Anton LaVey, Church of Satan type stuff. It's deceiving them with a worldview of godlessness. And so they're going to the world to discover how the world works without God. And it is honestly amazing to how their brains work that God has given them to the depths that they will go to to deny God in creation. I was just listening to Daniel Dennett and Jeffrey Ward debate consciousness on the way here from Unbelievable to Heavy Hitters. Uh, once again, I thought our Christian was way too nice on Unbelievable. They're always just way too polite on those things. They need to get a little bit more sassy, uh, apologetic people in there. 
But Daniel Dennett said, now we all know as atheists, we've got to put information into our philosophical systems. And it's not physical, but we know we've got to put it there. And then he begins to describe everything else as a physical phenomenon, everything else in naturalism. But of course, information, we just got to deal with it as it is and not try to explain it, just take it as it is and go from there. And so they come up with these ways that they can possibly connect information to the natural world. But most of the time, they just punt and they just go, well, it's here. There's not much we can do with it. Now let's, you know, trying to explain it. Let's just go forward. It's the same thing with Lawrence Krauss. He writes the book, the great physicist writes the book, A Universe from Nothing, A Universe from Nothing. Now you would think that book would resemble the world's encyclopedia on what men know about women. Have you ever seen that? It goes by different titles, but it's the world's encyclopedia of what men know about women. You normally find it in a bathroom. It's really super thick, and then you open it up, and all the pages are blank, right? And it's just blank. Now, if you write a book called The Universe from Nothing, what should be in the book? Nothing, nothing. But then he takes the next two or three hundred pages, right? And he just describes nothing. He describes nothing with gravitational forces in a vacuum. He describes how nothing acts in this circumstance and that circumstance. And it's, 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 it's just mind-numbing and astounding to how great godlessness is. Godlessness is a sin. And it deceives people. And then you got, as I've shared before, you've got the guy who writes the book, Alex Rosenberg, the Phil, um, uh, the um, atheist guide to reality, living life without illusions. And then he says everything's an illusion, including you. And then he goes on to talk about how all this uh, has purpose for you as an atheist and how you should live your life. After he declares that there's not even a you, there's no purpose to the universe. And this is their, this is their walking contradiction. And when you listen to them, you can just be, your mind can go numb. I mean, if we were on a road trip, let's say we're going back down to Florida, we're on a road trip together, one of those 15 passenger vans, and I put on this debate, most of the time everybody's going to fall asleep, a couple of us will stay up, and the ones of us who are staying up, because it puts my wife to sleep all the time, and those of us who stay up will just keep face palming, going, what, pause this, did he just say that? Did he just say, literally, I just heard Daniel Dennett say, we are in a purposeless universe with all the natural mechanisms having no purpose, but from that we have purpose. And he, he says it with a straight face, and then, yeah, it's just face palm. It's what in the world? It's just like the same thing. There's information. We don't know where it comes from, but we deal with it, and so now we'll explain everything else. Or there's no purpose to life, and now let me write the atheist guide to reality. This, this is the world we live in with godlessness, and I believe it's a spirit, man. I believe not just that they're demon-possessed, but that they're buying into a realm, a spiritual realm, that deceives them into a mindset to think this works. And that mindset is a darkness. And we've all been there in different ways. We've all tried to live godless. We've all tried to live godless. As a matter of fact, let's just go there to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your sins and ways you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them, lived among them at one time gratifying our flesh. And so we see that it's quite clear that all of us have related to this godless kind of living. And then you look at, look at here, uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 12, it says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
Now, did that mean God wasn't in the world? Of course not. But in the mentality, God was not in the world. So imagine if you tried to explain this computer without understanding Steve Jobs. I mean, you could go to so many intricacies and describing the thing, and you could come up with so many ideas of how it could get here, but you would never be able to have the foundation of the computer unless you admitted there's a designer. And I know sometimes people think, like, those, those arguments are wore out, you know, the watchmaker argument or the cosmological, the first cause argument. And these arguments are not worn out. They're tried and true. They are tested and true. When you deny the first cause, you have no more explanation for any other cause. You're left in a world to wonder if there's even motion. That's the foolishness that you're left with. And I went back and basically put myself to sleep reading through those paradoxes again of whether or not motion actually exists. And, you know, that you just get caught up and they're, they're so smart. And you're thinking to yourself, these people are so smart, but how are they so ignorant? Well, go to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians. What does the Bible say in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians? He talks about how he takes the wisdom of this world and makes it foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So why is it foolish to them? Because it doesn't play by their academic games. Why didn't Paul get a standing ovation at Mars Hill? It's because he didn't play according to their games. He didn't start off by trying to describe motion. He didn't try to start saying, oh, what is truth to be or not to be? He just started off, this is my God. He's the one you don't know. He's the one that answers by prayer. He put us all in this world for a purpose. He's going to judge you. And the proof of that is he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And right when it got to the point of him raising Jesus from the dead, that's when they all turn on him. They're like, oh, this guy is stupid. He, they, he expects us, us smart Greek philosophers, to give up everything we believe based on that one little fact, based on that one uh, uh, proposition. But that's exactly what we're asked to do in the Bible. The creator of the universe who was there when we weren't is now telling us, trust me with salvation, and then I'll do the rest in your life. We're trying to help you live in this world, and science can be good, and philosophy can be good, but if you don't start with the foundation that God is your creator, and you have sinned against that God, there's not going to be any wisdom that will profit you in this world. And I know that, once again, that sounds a little bit harsh because, you know, unbelievers do smart things all the time. They're like, you know, able to be doctors, and they can fix our cars. And if we were all astronauts here, we could go to the moon with an atheist. But remember this, we're never doing it on their worldview. We're never doing it on their worldview. Everything that's being done in science, in medicine, in philosophy is being done because of Jesus and his worldview. So they think of us as being foolish, but that's not real folly. They're real folly. So keep reading verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Learn the apologetic method that I'm teaching you here and watch how fast you will frustrate them. Because they will want to argue with you 
about all of the scientific knowledge that they have, all of the details, all of the books that they've read, and what you're going to want to argue with is their very foundation. And they're not going to want to talk about a foundation. They're going to want to punt and say, we can't make any more progress there. That's not even an important question. I heard Ricky Jarvis say those are stupid questions because he was on the Colbert show, and Colbert's a Catholic, and he was just asking him as a friend some questions. Colbert was being funny, and he was like, you don't believe in God? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, where did everything come from? And he's like, that's a stupid question. Now that it's here, we just deal with it, and we can explain things without God. So they literally think the question of us talking about foundations is stupid. They think us attributing a great mind to all of our minds is stupid. And then they want to tell us that they don't have a mind, they only have a brain that they're just a walking bag of chemicals. Literally in the discussion I was watching with Dennett, or listening to with Dennett and Ward, the atheist Dennett said the word design about six times, referring to the brain, the brain is designed, the brain is designed, the brain is designed. He referred to himself as a person about three or four times, the entire time denying that he is a person and denying that he has a mind while trying to prove he's only but a brain. It is absolute foolishness. And when we talk to them, they will get frustrated because that's what the Bible said they would do. We are supposed to not be afraid of the frustration. We are to welcome the frustration and say, hey, dude, wake up and get frustrated. Get mad if if you want. I'm okay with it. My Bible says you would get mad and frustrated because I want to know what your axiom is. I want to know where are you starting from. Now, I'm going to be going somewhere today, but I want to just show you this one more time because I want to really deal with the Christian opposition to six-day creation. You see, this is what we're asking them, aren't we? We're saying, Daniel Dennett, when you don't like what we're talking about and you say that I'm violating a law of nature, where in the world did that law, logic come from? Where is the uniformity from? And why is there morality here? Because you think it's good to be good. And then they want to say that, that doesn't matter. Why do you think they keep saying it doesn't matter? Because they can't answer it. And what they can't answer, they now want to say doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Eh, it doesn't matter. And don't you get deceived into thinking that you're going to talk about all these things with them and get anywhere. Until they lay down something here, don't move from there. Now, if you're in a professional field where you got to deal with logicians and scientists and, you know, uh, maybe you work at a school or something, then sure, you, you have no choice now but to work within their worldview. But I'm talking about if you're in a debate, or you're talking to somebody on the streets, or you're preaching the gospel, you don't owe them any discussions about any of these things up here until they put a foundation down there. That's it. Let's stay right there until you give me a foundation. Because if you don't have one, just admit you don't. Now let me preach to you. Because there's no more argument now. Let me preach. You go home and study what I'm telling you, because everything I'm telling you is about a foundation. Amen? Now the thing that I want to bring up to you is this picture right here of, you know, it's a cartoon, kind of a silly picture, but I think it really demonstrates what's going on in the world, and I actually want to play for you one of the people that I've looked up to over the years and how now they mock us as young earth creationists, so he's one of these guys with the tie blowing out our own foundation, okay? And I want Jared to hear this too because I turned Jared on to William Lane Craig. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it on so they can hear it here, and then you guys will be able to hear it just from my phone. So you guys are going to have to listen carefully, okay? 
He's going to explain now why he's going to do research on whether or not Adam and Eve even existed. Okay? Dr. Craig, you're a lot braver than I am. <laughs> Taking on this topic. Now, this is something that I don't think we need to fear, and I think that all of us need to be well-versed uh, in this topic, but it has certainly been one that people have asked from time immemorial, and it seems like in increasing on these days, and that is Adam and Eve. What does the Bible teach? Who were they? Uh, how does that relate to some of the newest scientific evidence that's been discovered and things like that? Do we need to revise our understanding? There's so many questions. And um, after spending some time on the atonement, I might understand that you're going to make this the next area of study? Yes, that's right. As I prepare for writing a philosophical theology someday, I'm trying to bone up on areas where I'm, I'm weak. And this is one of those areas. I've read in creation evolution literature over the years and have some familiarity with this topic, but no in-depth knowledge of it. And so I've decided to tackle this. And I think you're right, Kevin. This does require bravery to do because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are troubling for everybody. Ooh. First 11 chapters are troubling for everybody? Are they troubling for you? They're not troubling for me. They're not one part about this that's troubling. Why would any of these 11 chapters be troubling to me? I believe in what God said. Six days sounds pretty clear to me. I believe there was a real Adam and Eve. That's where we came from, one race, the human race. I believe that the first man to get murdered was Abel by his brother Cain. I believe in the, uh, the flood of Noah, the global flood. I believe in the Tower of Babel separating according to nations by a curse for them trying to ascend to heaven. Not a problem to me. Why is that a problem to him? Let's keep going recently said to me, the only way that I've managed to sort of deal with the first 11 chapters of Genesis about Adam and Eve, the fall, Noah and the ark, the Tower of Babel, is just sort of by sweeping them under the rug mm -hmm. and ignoring them. Wow. So he said he talked to somebody that's supposed to be really smart, just like him, and he said, the only way I've dealt with the first 11 chapters of Genesis is by ignoring them. Listen to it again. That I've managed to sort of deal with the first fire bravery to do because the first 11 chapters of Genesis are troubling for everybody. Someone recently said to me, the only way that I've managed to sort of deal with the first 11 chapters of Genesis about Adam and Eve, the fall, Noah and the ark, the Tower of Babel, is just sort of by sweeping them under the rug mm. and ignoring them and, and refusing to ask the hard questions like, was there really a universal flood that submerged the world? Was the origin of human languages really because of this tower that was built in Mesopotamia? And when did this happen? Was there really a talking snake that tempted man into sin? And is the reason that snakes crawl on the ground because they were cursed by God? These questions make everyone uncomfortable. Um, Don't make me uncomfortable. Don't make me uncomfortable one bit. See, this is what happens. When you take away this foundation... Well, what's the atheist now going to say to you? Don't you feel uncomfortable about the Red Sea parting too? Don't you feel uncomfortable about the plagues of Egypt? Don't you feel uncomfortable about a virgin birth? I mean, where does it stop, Jared? You see what I was talking to you about a while back? I mean, we were trying to be gracious in the sense that we still believe they could be Christians, but we were trying to open up our worldview a little bit, let people explore these things. But look at how quickly he went from not taking the days of the Bible serious, to now he's willing to put the whole thing on the table. Deny the flood, deny that Adam and Eve even existed, to deny that the cultures came from the Tower of Babel, that this is all just myth. This is all parables. This is one of our top Christian philosophers, and we're watching him not apostatize. I don't think it's going to cost him his salvation. I mean, it could lead to that in our lifetime. I hope not. But we're watching him take the path of a fool. Let's keep listening. To tackle this now and try to weigh just how do we assess the reality or the historicity of Adam and Eve in particular. But in order to do that, you need to look at them within the context of Genesis 1 to 11, the whole primeval history of the world that Genesis gives prior to the call of Abraham. And then you have to ask, how does that primeval history fit into the whole of the book of Genesis? And that's not the end of the story. How does the book of Genesis fit into the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is a composite unified work? So Adam and Eve is contextualized within Genesis 1 to 11, which is contextualized within Genesis, which is contextualized within the Pentateuch. And under so very, very honest. He understands. You really can't deal with Genesis chapter. 
chapters 1 through 11 without understanding just the whole entire Old Testament and the New Testament. You're not really going to get around that, so you better start adding a lot of parables in there, right? That's what he's saying. Let's keep going. Understanding all of these is necessary if we're to grasp what the Bible really teaches about Adam and Eve. What spurred this for you? Has it been kind of bubbling under the surface? Was it the Debar conference? Okay, now what spurred this for you, Dr. Craig? Why do you really want to study if Adam and Eve are real people? What made you want to do that? Was it because you read the Bible and you came up with a theological conundrum actually in the Bible? Was it because while you were reading Scripture, you came up with new questions, understanding Greek or Hebrew? Was it because while you were looking in the New Testament, you saw that maybe they didn't believe in a literal Adam and Eve? What made you, William Lane Craig, want to go back and study if Adam and Eve are real people and how Genesis 1 through 11 should be dealt with? Well, it's always been troubling to me to understand this. I think the question of the antiquity of man has always troubled me. That is to say, Adam, as described in Genesis, appears to be very recent, just a few thousand years ago. Well, so so appears to be recent, so it's troubling him, appears to be recent. Let's keep going. Descriptions of Adam and his sons and descendants include things like farming, sheep herding, musical instruments, even smelting of metals like iron. And these are very recent developments in civilization. These are not descriptions of the culture of a caveman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've come to appreciate that when Bishop Usher added up the ages of the genealogies and said the world was created around 4,040 years ago, he was no fool. Uh, there could be some gap. There are gaps in the genealogies. But it's not as though Usher was doing something outrageous. It does seem like Genesis 1 to 11 describes events that are very probably, recent yeah, in probably. human history, not Stone Age cavemen type of events. And yet that runs very counter to what paleoanthropology tells us about human origins. Mm-hmm. Anatomically, modern human beings like you and me originated somewhere around 200,000 years ago, and they obviously didn't have the kind of culture that is described in Genesis 1 to 11. And in addition to that, you've got these Neanderthals and Denisovans, who are other types of archaic human beings, who, though not anatomically identical to us, nevertheless had comparable brain size, um, used tools that required intentional activity. It appears that Neanderthals may have buried their dead. There, there was a Neanderthal grave discovered that was strewn with flowers. They buried the dead person apparently on a bed of flowers. Yeah, and what had you been believing before... We told you what they were. You believed they were soulless animals with Hugh Ross, and now you're starting to change, and you've already adopted that man's about 200,000 years old. So I see the problem now. Let's keep going. Which seem to show some sort of belief in afterlife, or at least some sort of aesthetic sensibility that doesn't look like this is some kind of ape man. This, is, this looks like a human being. So, for example, in the recent book, Theistic Evolution, which is an attack... ...a broadside against theistic evolution, the authors in there defend... The humanity of Neanderthals and Denisovans as well as... So the book by Christians writing about theistic evolution actually say the Neanderthals are now people because they're going to take the, the scientific view, which is now the Christian view, right? But that's a problem for him because the scientific view has changed. And he's becoming uncomfortable with having to change because first the scientific view said Neanderthals were, were a hum, um, uh, walking apes, basically. Okay, and they were subhuman, and that's what he thought they were. Now they change, and now they say they're persons. Let's keep going. So he's basically saying, what I've been putting my faith in is now sand, and I'm trying to figure out if Adam even existed. Homo sapiens, anatomically modern men. Well, that would put human origins, Kevin, back around 500,000 years mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't gel with a sort of factual interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11. Okay. So that was the issue that has always okay. bothered me that, frankly, I kind of swept under the rug, not knowing how to deal with it. But what's Oh, so you've kind of swept it under the rug. So you were the one sweeping under the rug, too. So I don't know if he had a quote-unquote friend sweeping under the rug. And if that was really him, I don't know. But it now comes out to be he's the one sweeping under the rug, too, even if he has a real friend that's doing that, right? So what was the problem? The problem is very simple. 
He believed the book of Genesis only as it was interpreted by science, and now science keeps changing. Now he has a problem, so he wants to go back and try to figure it all out, and you can go back to listen to that podcast. That podcast is Focus on Adam and Eve with uh, William Lane Craig. So there he goes, blowing out the foundation. He's already given up that the days are real days. They represent ages. When we read Genesis chapter 1, It's not really describing the world as the facts appear to be, which he was very clear. You look at the Bible, it looks about 4,500 B.C., so it's been only about 6,000 years. The Jewish calendar puts it around 5,776 years, I believe, right now. And so he goes, yep, that's the way it looks, but science says this, science says that, science told me this, and now I see a problem. Now what's the real problem? The real problem is that he's given up his worldview, hasn't he? He's given up his worldview. He has taken on the worldview of science as his foundation. The year, according to the Jews, is 5,779. I think they're pretty close. So what did he do? He gave up that foundation. He said, well, I'm going to start following science because that seems like it's the smart thing to do. And as he started doing that, what did he start doing? Blowing out his foundation. And then he realized that it wasn't something he could keep sweeping under the rug. And so now he wants to go back and investigate Adam. But as he's going back and investigate Adam, Professor, he knows that this is going to possibly affect everything else. So he extends the implication here to Genesis 1 to 11 and then possibly all throughout the Bible. So what does that mean now for our Jesus? What does that mean for our Jesus? Let's go to some scriptures here about what Jesus thought about Adam and Eve. Go to uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But at the beginning, Jesus replied, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What are some of the problems that he now is going to have? Right now, if he believes in a creation that is a different time frame from the beginning To when Adam and Eve are created, he is now contradicting our Jesus that said at the beginning. Does everybody get that? So if he says millions and billions of years ago God created, just like the time scale shows us in evolution, the world and all of these things, and then man is created at some other point later, that's been a safe position for a lot of these guys is they don't give up Adam and Eve. So they're not theistic evolutionists. They're day-age theorists. And what that basically means is, is evolution is all true except to man. And then man gets a special creation. But now he's even putting that on the table. And if you listen to the further podcast, he's saying that possibly, man could have been around, uh, Adam and Eve could have been the first evolved tribe, and then God just picked one out of that evolved tribe and said, now you're Adam and Eve. That's kind of another safe way to get around with it. So it's it's a legitimate Adam and Eve, but it's not the first humans. It's a tribe of humans. And one of the ways they'll say that is Cain's going to go out and marry one of the rest of them in that tribe. And so Adam and Eve was never really made from the dirt, never really the first ones. But where's the biggest problem with that? They are saying that between the beginning of creation to where Adam and is, there are billions of years. They're admitting to billions of years. Does everybody get that? But what does Jesus say at the beginning? At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So now we see the timeline. Beginning? That's the same time Adam and Eve are being made. And guess what? He reiterates, they're being made. They're not being picked out out of an evolved tribe. They're being made 
specifically for this task by God. Let's look at what else Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, verse 50. Luke chapter 11, verse 50, Jesus reiterates when he believes was the foundation of the world. Look at what he says here. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since what? Since the beginning of the world. And look at it in the the foundation. Uh, Look at the King James Version that was shed from the foundation of the world. So according to God, the first one that was murdered is Abel. If this tribe lived at that time, there's been murder all throughout the animal history or all all throughout the, 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 the time of evolution, the shedding of blood. And so now we see that the shedding of blood did not happen of a human until Abel. And then once again, if they don't want to take that story literally, you have a problem because Jesus equates it with the beginning of the world. Two problems in each verse. When's the beginning according to Jesus? When these things are happening. And when these things are happening, they are the first of their kind. Abel is the first man to die. He's the first man to die. That is not true according to the evolutionary system. And then in the marriage scenario, Adam and Eve aren't the first human beings. So now what do they say? What is their argument now? What they now say is Jesus was accommodating. It's called accommodation theory. That Jesus is accommodating the people of that time in their ignorance. Wow, it's how, look how fast we started to slip. We went from Jesus being God of glory, knowing all things, to now Jesus being a nincompoop with other nincompoops. That's where Jesus is. And so Jesus is accommodating them. Guess what else accommodation theory teaches? Jesus is accommodating people who think there are demons because there's really not, but he's just accommodating them. They're really just sick. And then guess what now they say is that the stories are an accommodation. The entire gospel is an accommodation of mythical heroes of that time. So they made their Messiah a mythical hero. Therefore, the stories of resurrection and healing don't even exist. Same accommodation theory. The stories are just a story accommodating the people. Sounds like the Jesus seminar, doesn't it? Sounds like now Dominic Crossan starts to sound like he's part of a a, a group of pastors now because that's what Dominic Crossan believes. That's what the Jesus Seminar people believe. They still call themselves Christians, but they have watered down Christianity to literally be just a philosophy that was taught by a group of people through their mythological stories. Is that what we want to do? No, I think we need to go back to our foundations. When we go to our foundations, we see very clearly that the Bible speaks about these things as if they were true. And the people who discovered the scientific method, the people who worked in all of the major fields of science, guess what they believed about these stories as well? What do you think they believed? They believed these stories were true. Now let me ask you a question. Is it any coincidence that the founders of the scientific revolution were young earth creationists. They weren't Buddhists. They weren't Muslims. They were young earth creationists. Francis Bacon, discoverer of the scientific method. Galileo, Johann Kepler, the scientific astronomy. 
all of these wonderful people, Pascal, hydrostatistics barometer. How about this one? Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, former of uh, inventor of calculus, discoverer of gravity, all the rest of these wonderful scientists. Do you know that even during the time of Darwin, there were Christian scientists explaining the natural world in the same way that we explain it now? During the exact time of Darwin, notice this author and what he said. Remember, all Darwin had was a theology degree. These men were all Christians trying to understand the world. Darwin went off. But look at what this um, person right here wrote during the time of Darwin. Look at this. Reverend Adam Sedwick, professor of geology at Cambridge from 1818 to 1873, said this. From first to last, it, origin, is a dish of rank materialism cooked up. And why is this done? For no other reason, I am sure, except to make us independent of a creator. So this person right here understood that this idea of evolution was cooked up to get us to take away our eyes from the creator. Are you guys watching this? Now watch this right here. Let me go right here. Um... In 1837, okay, hold on. Let me go here. I'm missing one here. Let me see. Oh, I should have highlighted this. Okay, Mendel, right here. A contemporary, contemporary of Darwin, Gregory Mendel, a creationist, discovered the laws of genetics. He published his work in a prominent journal in the late 1860s, but it remained undiscovered, or rather unrecognized, for over 30 years, possibly because it did not fit with the growing acceptance of the Darwinian view. Mendel showed that genetic variation was limited and that when a new trait seemed to appear, it was actually already there in the genes of the parents. It was not expressed because of dominant genes hiding the effect of recessive genes. So right there at the very time of Darwin, people try to make us out to be Oompa Loompas and say that we didn't understand what was going on. No, right at the very time of Darwin, we were saying God did not have to specially create every single variety of these kinds, that these kinds could have species within them and variations within them, and we do not have to accept this, which this idea of everybody having a common ancestor was 100% made to get us to turn from our creator. Godlessness. So why did people, come on, let's be honest now as we do some philosophy of science and history of science, why did people in the late 1800s start believing in this instead of that? Was it because they had more evidence? Absolutely not. It's not that they had more evidence at all. The evidence was exactly what the Bible says it was. The finches were exactly what it said it was, according to what we believed. They reproduced after their kind and made the varieties. No, it wasn't because of evidence. It was because they wanted to get rid of the foundation. They wanted to get rid of the foundation. Look at Psalm 11, verse 3. Psalm 11, verse 3 says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
So what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Well, we can try now to start rebuilding them and start to honor the things of God. One more thing that I want to share here to warn us against giving up our foundations as Christians is look at how the Bible now is made to contradict the story of evolution when you make evolution your foundation. Look at all the different ways it contradicts. You see, with us, we get the heavens and earth first before there's ever a sun, and yet you need light exploding and creating a sun here for evolution to work, but we don't get a sun until day four. And yet after the sun, then all of these living creatures start, but yet we have, uh, I mean, it comes from the waters and all uh, living uh, plants start, but we have living plants before there's even a sun. So how do the evolutionists or Christian evolutionists or Christian day-age theorists try to get around it? What they do now is they change the plain reading of the Scripture. So when it says God created the heavens and the earth, and the, now there was darkness, uh, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, what they now say is the sun was made and all the stars were there. It's just the earth can't see it. It's because it's surrounded by a mist or a cloud of, of chemicals and all these things. And so when God said, let there be light, that's just light starting to come from, but, uh, come from the, the sun, but you can't quite see the sun yet. So it's the effects of the sun, the light, the energy of the sun, like a microwave. You know, you can't really, you, you know, you see dimly through the microwave, and there's energy going on there, but you can't really see the whole thing. You can't see the light that's in there, right? And so now they start to say, when he said here that he actually said, let there be vaults in the sky and let them serve as times, and so God made two great lights. He's not actually making anything because he already made it all on day one, which is now billions of years ago. Now he's just letting the light in and letting people see it. Does that sound like a good exegetical reading of Genesis chapter 1? No, and then when we get to the creation of Adam and Eve, what's Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve is the result of all of these hominids and hominids and all this, and now finally God either comes and creates specially mankind to finish off this evolutionary chart, or he takes one of them and then he breathes into them. Now they become a living soul. Forgot to mention that. He actually takes one and does it. Is that what it sounds like? He takes an evolved ape and now says, you're going to be my first one? No, we go to the Bible and it says, let us make mankind in our own image. So what do we see the Bible teaching us? As I was sharing uh, during my time here at the beginning, is that I think the greatest thing I did for you guys yesterday as a church was to read you Genesis chapter 1. And so I'd like to have us read it again. And I want us as theologians, as scholars, as people in training to do these things, uh, to, to take the Scriptures and interpret them correctly, to just read it and let it speak for itself. To let this be our standard. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read it from my notes. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Sometimes people ask, why was it like that when God first created it? Why didn't God just simply create um, the earth with the garden there at that point, you know, why, why is there a process here that seems to be going on? And, you know, we can't ever, we, we can't know for sure why things are happening the way they are, but what we can know is that God has a purpose that will probably be revealed in another time. What I think is being revealed here 
is that God is showing his power over all of the elements because as we begin to store, study history, people in different pagan religions believed that water was the source of life and that water was the most powerful uh, source on the earth and that it was only uh, the only thing the gods couldn't control or that it was an abyss of some sort and the gods themselves came out of this watery abyss. And so what we think God is saying here is that the formless, empty, what would be in their words like this abyss of water God is still in control of. It may not sound very impressive to us because we be like, that doesn't sound very powerful. But according to their mythology, these were the kinds of things that they would have believed in. And so I believe God is showing them I'm in control of the entire, the entire world. And so anytime they would try to insert a God here, that we would come back and say, your God is not even existing because our God is the thing that created this. And he said, there's no God that comes from this. This is where it all came from, what you believe. Kind of like the Logos in a sense, but this is our God. So that's why I believe that Genesis includes this. But uh, then we would have to ask, why did they ever believe that? So remember, Genesis happens first, and then paganism happens later. So it's the truth of this, and then paganism reinterprets it. So I think by the time Genesis is being written by Moses, which is about, what, a thousand years after the the, the you know, the beginning of the world, I believe this is because now the clarification of the myth is being told in the truth. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? So that's why it's included in here, and that's why they had it to begin with. So comparative religion shouldn't be something we avoid. Comparative religion should just help us trace back to God again, okay? So that's what's going on here. And we know the Father, Son, and Spirit are here. We see the Spirit. We know the Father's here, and then when God starts speaking, we know the Word is there. Once again, we know that from Revelation and the New Testament. Jesus reveals all of these things to us, and John says, in the beginning was the Word. And so now we know the spoken power of the Father is coming through that person we know as the Word. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. Once again, that is the clear time frame there. You are not supposed to now insert Peter saying the 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord and say, well, maybe this could be 6,000 years. Well, number one, 6,000 years doesn't help you get anywhere. It doesn't help you get anywhere, number one. And number two, the day to God is like a 1,000 years, but we don't have to guess what a day was like for the new earth. We know a day was like this for the new earth, an evening and a morning. So what kind of day is that supposed to be like to us, the one that's like a 1,000 years to God, or like a day to us, evening and morning? So that's why we take them as literal days. Then God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. Now at this point, I want to go deeper, and this was something that I didn't know if I would have time to do, and of course I didn't. But there is a slight bit of a discrepancy between different creationists here on whether or not this vault is sky or if this vault is space. Now, let me show to you why I'm between the two opinions, but I'm leaning towards more of it being space. And the reason why I, I went with uh, sky is because it's the easier thing to explain, and I didn't want to have to stop and try to explain space there. But if I get to know more about this subject and I feel more confident in it, I think I'll do it with space. But what I want to do is at least introduce you to it. So uh, Russell Humphreys, the one who predicted the magnetic 
forces of the planet Neptune, and Mercury, I believe, was the other one, wrote a book to explain the starlight problem and the reason why uh, if we tried now to travel to these planets, it would take the amount of time we think it would be because we can measure light and we at least understand how far these things are coming from. So he wrote a book to, under, to help us understand how God stretched the heavens during this time. And so one of the things that he brings up here is to understand the vault in the sky. So let me bring up here the vault in the sky. So basically, if you guys can see this, what he is going to consider a part of the vault will be our sky here, but the vault is bigger than our sky. It's actually, going to, it's actually going to encompass what we would call the expanse. And so the expanse is going to be anything from the surface of the earth to the boundary of the universe. And what he believes is the boundary of the universe is surrounded by water. Now, we'll never get to the boundary of the universe, and everybody's allowed to make guesses, but that's his guess because he reads that quite literally, and I'll show you in just a minute uh, how he comes to that by going to what could be the problem. Because you notice here it says, let there be a vault between the waters, and that's Genesis 1-6. Let me make sure I can get my Hebrew up here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. But notice when he gets, well, let's go to the word... Um, here with this, the vault, which is going to be called the sky, verse 6, it says, let there be an expanse. That's the King James for the Hebrew word, rakia, rakia, okay? Now, notice where he puts the stars and the moon and all of these things. Where does he put those? He put those, verse 17, he also puts those in the what? The vault or the expanse. The same word, right? So this is where he as an astrophysicist comes along and says we should understand that this is the face of the expanse. This is the face of it, the sky, and then the rest of it is up there. Now, I want you to see the other book that he writes to help explain how he believes in the stretching okay, the stretching of the heavens and why things are so far. He, we do not believe that the distances are make-believe. We believe, I mean, look at all the math he's doing here. This guy's no joke. He's a real deal. We believe in the distances, okay? But what we believe happened was, and there's different creationist models. There's not one way to look at it. Where's where he shows the stretching here? Well, it might be at the beginning of the book. Yep, there we go. Is he going to show it again? Spock there, you saw that, huh? Okay. I'm sorry, guys. I thought I had it marked. He is going to show us a diagram that basically shows that a bulge is what creates space around us. And when God stretched forth that bulge, the gravitational pull was different at that time. So it was a one-time event, 
And by doing that, time runs different on different gravitational pulls. And this is already fact. We know this. So he's not making up science to fit our worldview. In the movie Interstellar, they're on a planet, and this, uh, and, the, and the guy's above the planet, and he's aging super fast. I mean, he's aging like normal, but down there, um, there's no, okay, he's up there, and it's been like 70 years, and they're down there, and it's like two minutes. And Neil deGrasse Tyson and all the rest of the physicists agree that that's possible if there's different gravitational pulls because gravity affects time. And if I could just get this chart, that would be really nice. So let me try it again. Why am I not finding this chart here? Okay, I must have. There it is. Okay. So what he believes is right here we are, and then the expanse happens. So right here. The first expanse and then the second expanse. Well, there's like three, three. The Bible talks about there being three heavens, okay? The Bible talks about there being the heavens of the sky, the heavens of the space, and the heavens where God lives, okay? So let's just clarify that real quick. Now, what he's calling the first expanse is including our expanse, okay? But the point is, is that there is a stretching that happens, and I want to show the bulge here. Because I can't explain. That's why I'm, I didn't teach it yesterday. Good thing I didn't teach it. Maybe it's the other book. I have two books by him. Look at all those pretty pictures. All I want to do is show that one thing where he has a grid. Let me put it up here, and then I'll just leave it at this. Okay. Is anybody else frustrated besides me? There we go. This is just basically the way he explains it, okay? So the gravitational potential well from a spherical symmetric distribution of galaxies with our galaxy at the center, okay? So the basic idea, if God created the world from us being the center, which there's no way to prove that because we can't even get to the outwards expanse. And so it's, it's just a theory that if we were in the center and we're at the depressive side of this ball of the universe and everything else is being expanded kind of up and away from us, all of this time is moving super, super fast on a day and so to us, it's one day, but for this expanse that's happening here is billions of years. That's how he describes it. Now, can we prove that to be true right now? No, but we can give explanations with the same science that everybody else is using. It's just saying that clocks run differently at different gravitational pulls. And we're describing a universe that fits with our world. Is it okay to do that? Absolutely. That's what they do. They have on their worldviews, and they're making guesses. Let me just show you how they make guesses all the time, okay? So one of the, one of the issues that we show to them is that there are still comets in our sky. And there shouldn't be comets in our sky if the universe is billions and billions of years old. Well, if there are comets in our sky, to us, that shows that they've only been around for a few thousand years because they die very easily. They get evaporated very easily. Are you guys following me? Very simple. And I'm, I'm just listening to our Christian astrophysicist, right? And then I check what they say. Well, 
Just like we talked about the dead man who says, oh, I guess dead people can bleed. Now they have to come up with a rescuing device to where do all these new comets come from? So they developed something called an Oort cloud, okay? Science Answers, scienceanswers.com. Sounds like a real smart place, right? Like sounds like a Discovery Channel place. And it's going to show you where comets come from. It comes from an Oort cloud. It has a picture of it, right? It has a picture here. And notice here how it, how it describes it. Uh, an Oort cloud extends a light year from the sun. So, wow, this Oort cloud is huge. It's where the Haley-Bott comet came from. Wow, I've heard of that, and that's where it was born. Wow, it came about 200 years ago. Cool, okay. It's made up of trillions of icy bodies. Wow, there's trillions there. You guys counted them? Wow, that's a lot of counting, right? It's extremely poisonous. Okay, it's dangerous. I don't want to go there. Okay, it might be by an undetected star and all these things. What, what's the last thing that it actually says about the Oort cloud? <laughs> what's the last thing it says? That might not actually exist. <laughs> Why was it developed then? Why was that made a theory and given all of these descriptions? Well, the spear of the Oort cloud was hypothesized to exist around our solar system and other similar planetary systems by astronomer Jane Oort. Why did you do that? Or Jan Oort, why did you do that? Since then, astronomers have tracked objects moving through it but are not yet to make drop, uh, direct observations of the cloud itself. So, yeah, they see stuff way over there and they're trying to say it's probably there, you know, but they can't prove it. Why, why is it they put it there? Because they had to tell us where the comets were coming from. They had to come up with a comet maker because there's all these comets in the world, right? So they have to come up with a comet maker, and it's the same thing with, with, um, with, with the gravitational pull or the magnetic field around these planets, same exact thing. Let's just go there real quick. So, uh, you know, if a world or planets have been around for a while, their magnetic, pull, uh, their magnetic energy should be low. The stronger it is, the younger it is. Real simple, right? Uranus and Neptune, by the way, not Mercury. Uranus and Neptune. So what do our guys do? They look at the magnetic field of the Earth, and before the satellites go out to these faraway planets, they make predictions. So our guy, Humphreys, who we're reading about, pretty smart guy, he makes predictions. And what does he say? He says, when Voyager gets there to start looking at Uranus and Neptune, it's going to show strong magnetic fields because it's a young planet like us. Guess what? They were confirmed as creationist theories. But now what did they go? Oh, well, I guess those magnetic fields can last 100 billion years or 10 billion years. It's the same thing with dinosaur blood. Oh, I guess dinosaur blood can last 100 million years. I, we never thought it could be done. See, they're making stupid mistakes because they're coming with the wrong worldview. If they had the right worldview, they would have been testing dinosaur bones for blood a long time ago. Now they're like, we're going to go back and test all the other ones. I bet you there's more blood in these things. Yeah, there probably is because they're not 100 million years old. But how do they do it now? Well, blood lasts 100 million years, you know, in a dinosaur bone. See, play, play, make believe. And so when we go back to our Bible, I know I don't have a lot of time left here. When we go back to the scriptures, let me go to my notes. We see that God made these things. God made the vault in the sky, and he made the expanse, the heavens. And then what does he say here? He makes the vault separated from the water under the vault, from the water above it. Now, I don't just believe that's the sky. I'm starting to believe it's more further out as well. So there's kind of two expanses here in the creation scenario. God called the vault sky, or he called it space, or he called it the expanse. 
Let's look at what that word sky means here. If it's the same one, if it's the same word here. And God called the vault heaven. There we go. Not sky, he called it heaven. And that's why we run into a little bit of confusion when we're trying to describe what heaven is because there's three heavens in the Bible called heaven. There's sky called heaven, and this could be an argument for that because it says the birds fly in there. We're going to hear in just a minute, so that's a good argument for that. But then, it's, but then heaven is also where stars go. So that would be the second heaven. And then Paul said he went to where? The third heaven, which is where God's throne is. Now, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created all three. Right? That's, that's what we believe. He believe he creates sky, he creates, uh, he creates the uh, space, and he also creates uh, the place where God um, is in heaven. So he made the vault, separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God made the vault sky, and that was evening. There was morning the second day. And, and I just can't keep going, right? So the time is up today, unfortunately. But I hope that you guys have been encouraged to know that the best thing that we can do for this world right now, as, as Paul said, even if it frustrates them, I get it, but the best thing we can do right now is show them the wisdom of God. That's the best thing we can do. And so that's where, uh, Desi, you don't have to be a scientist. God doesn't expect us to be scientists. We have an atheist uh, who's given his heart to Jesus, who used to be a Christian, who went full atheist, but then came back, and he said, you know, none of these arguments would have worked because he thought he knew everything. It was pride, but God got a hold of his heart. So we don't need to try to out-argue the atheist. We need to pray, preach the gospel, and believe God to do what only he can do. And then when we do debate with them, let's not get caught up in all the things that, that they think they know which maybe we don't know. That's true. We just say, hey, maybe you know more about the butterfly than I do. Maybe you know, okay, that's fine. But this is what I do know. Without God, you don't have a foundation for anything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for helping us uh, look into the world and discover the things that you made and to be just amazed at science and all of these wonderful things, but to do it with the lenses that you've given us. And, Lord, help us to have that simple faith that believes in you and our creator, and that you made all of these things. Just like uh, you taught us when you walked the earth, that this was the foundation of the world, and Adam and Eve were the first humans and so forth. May we live for you in all that we do, glorifying you upon this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.